0: number of visitors with us today, and if you're visiting, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Visitors are always welcome at Bethany, and uh, you'll find that we're just more like a family uh, here at Bethany, And, and that's the way God intended it to be. Coming together to worship is an essential part of any Christian's life, and those who call themselves Christians but do not worship in a in a public worship service, in a church where the Bible is accentuated, uh, really don't understand what it is to have that kind of fellowship each week. Glad you're here. We've been, I don't know how many weeks we've been in John 10, but we are wrapping it up today, and um, we've seen... Quite a few things in this chapter. Jesus, the door to the sheepfold, the thieves who climb in from some other way, the gatekeeper who opens the door when he hears the shepherd's voice, the sheep who follow the shepherd in and follow him out to find pasture. Jesus, the one who protects the sheep from the thieves who would break in to steal and kill and destroy. The shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The promise that there will one day be one fold and one shepherd over that fold. All fold. Given to the sheep, the shepherd by the Father, and He will guard us, and we will be with Him forever. Great promises from Chapter Ten of John. Certainly one of the more sovereign chapters. This morning I want to deal with verses thirty-one through verse forty-two. I know that's a bit of a, a more lengthy passage than we normally. Uh, get through on a, on a single Sunday morning, but uh, it lends itself to the final, the final words of our Lord as He speaks to the Pharisees with regard to who He is, why He came. He's already told them that He is the shepherd who came for His sheep to save his sheep, to redeem them. Now, he has said in verse verse 30, that he and the Father are one. The words of Christ concerning the, the sovereign work of the Father in saving and keeping his own are fought against in this passage by the Pharisees. They are the religious people of the day. They are the religious leaders of their time. Isn't it interesting that we can find in the world people who fight against the truth of the Word of God, and that doesn't surprise us so awful much when there are people that are not believers And they hear the word of God and they're convicted by it and they fight against it because they don't like what they're hearing with regard to themselves. But when that happens from other Christians, it sort of almost sets us back. Because we would expect that believers would rally around the word of God and would rejoice in what it actually says. This is not the case as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And as it is in our own day, they were outraged by his his words. And, And so people in our own day are outraged by the word of God as well. He made this one statement in verse 30 that says that he and the Father were one. Now, they knew what he meant when he said that. They're not one in personality, for the Father is a person, and the Son is a person, a person in the sense of having a personality, an individual personality. And so it is with the Spirit. Three persons making up one Godhead. But this is not what Jesus is talking about when he says, I and the Father are one. When he says that, makes that statement, he is saying that I and the Father are one in essence. We are one in nature. What the Father is, the Son is also. We find that he had stated this in his works in chapter 5. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. There's no mistaking what He meant. He's saying that I'm the same, in essence, as the Father. The Father works and I work. Whatever the Father does, I do. Making Himself equal with the Father. so, it says in that last part, verse 18 in chapter 5, that they were seeking the more to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. And so he was. He was God in the flesh, and he is still that. Now, we saw the same thing in chapter 8, verse 59, where they took up stones to kill him and because he, he claimed equality with God, saying that he was the I Am, the ego a me, the I Am of Exodus. There he escaped, and they could not find him. In every instance of their move to kill Jesus, it was almost always because of their their perception that he was making himself equal with God. And if it were not true, he would have been the biggest liar that ever faced, put, put a foot upon the face of the earth. But it was true. The exception to this, as far as them wanting to kill him because of their perception that he was saying he was God, is found in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was in the synagogue... <coughs> and he read from the scriptures and they, he read from the scriptures concerning the sovereignty of God in salvation and the Jews there at Nazareth wanted to kill him because he spoke of one widow in Zarephath being saved while there were many widows That we're not. And one leper who was cleansed. A leper, by the way, from from Syria. Who was cleansed. And all the other lepers were not. And after he'd said that, he closed the book. And they rose up and grabbed hold of him. And took him to the edge of a cliff. And were going to throw him over. Now, if you think that the sovereignty of God does not enrage people. There's the evidence. They were ready to throw him off the cliff, but he escaped. It was not his time, nor was it the way that the Father had chosen. So we come to verse 31. And we find in verse 31 that after Jesus says, I am in essence... And in nature, the same as the Father, we are one in essence, claiming equality and divinity. They picked up stones to stone him. Now those words, picked up, are interesting words because they really illustrate to us what's happening here. Where did they get the stones? I mean, did they have stones just ready for stoning at any time? No, not specifically. But you have to understand that the temple was still in building, being built at this particular time. And so there would have been stones lying around everywhere. The words picked up describe the action of taking something and lifting it and carrying it or lifting it up. What they were doing was they were preparing themselves to stone him. The same word is used in in John chapter 12, verse 6, where it speaks of Judas who carried the money bag. He was the treasurer for the the twelve disciples. And how that he carried the bag and took money from it for himself. Why stoning? I mean, couldn't there be a more humane way of executing a capital punishment than throwing rocks at someone? Stoning was the ordained method of capital punishment given by God in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2 and verse 27, Numbers chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 21, we see God commanding that whoever breaks his law in certain ways should be taken and stoned by the people. Now stoning as a, as a punishment of death against offenders of the law dates back to the first Babylonian or Sumerian empire about the 14th century. BC This method was used in every empire from that time and was common among the Egyptians. We see it in Exodus chapter 8 where, where Moses speaks of being stoned by the Egyptians. They didn't stone him, but he was afraid he was was going to be stoned. This was also the method that lasted into the first century among the Jews. The weapons of their execution were stones or rocks of such size that they would injure and kill the individual. We're not talking about rocks like we have in our flower, in our. Shrubbery out there, it would hurt to get hit by a rock thrown at you of that size, but it probably wouldn't kill you. We're talking about stones that are of cinder block size, or at least half that size, that a person would raise over their heads and come down with such force that it would break bones, that it would do internal injury to an individual. From their perspective, Jesus had spoken blasphemy and he deserved or was worthy of death. This this was what God said in chapter 24 of Leviticus, verses 11 through 16. And of course, it would have been blasphemy had it not been true. But Jesus always spoke the absolute truth. Everything that came out of his mouth was always truth and always substantiated by his life and his works. This is why he began so many statements throughout the Gospels with the words, truly, truly. They are equivalent of, I am telling you the truth. Now, what we find here in, the, in this, these, these verses, these last few verses, is Jesus having been surrounded by the Pharisees, and they're asking him questions about himself with regard to his, his being the Messiah. Tell us plainly if you are the Messiah. He said, I told you, but you did not believe. The works that I did should have been enough that you could see that I was the Messiah. But they were blind. They were blind to his, to his works, they were blind to his words. They could not understand what he was saying. Because it's the Spirit that makes a person understand these spiritual words. So he alludes to the works that the Father had sent him to do, which were signs of who he was. He was the eternal Word, the Son of God, who became flesh. John starts his very first chapter with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The works that Jesus did, Jesus characterizes as good works. Now, the word good means something that is beautiful, something fine, something handsome, or something useful. It is that which meets the high standards and expectations of appearance. Think of it. What would have been more glorious than a blind man? being healed and able to see. What would have been more miraculous than touching a leper and the and the leprosy disappearing? Or a woman who had been sick for fourteen years, touching the hem of his garment and being healed of her disease. He he did good works. The works that he did were noble works. They were of the highest standards and expectations. They were noble. They were the anticipation of moral quality. No one could say of his works that he ever harmed anyone or did hurt to anyone. It's just the opposite. These works were in connection with Him being the good shepherd, which is the same exact word. I am the good shepherd. I am the noble shepherd. I am the shepherd that is useful to the sheep. The beautiful one. The fine one. Why? Because the works themselves came from heaven. They were given to him by the Father. And whatever the Father gave him, he did. And so all the miracles that we see that Jesus does for people along through the Gospels, all of those were preordained by the Father. And he, he executed them with perfection. Now let me tell you something good. You have those same works That are yours as well. Given to you by the Father. Listen to, or turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice beginning at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, so that no one may boast. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. You see, what we're doing is we're carrying on the good works that Jesus did only without the miraculous effects. The works that the Father has given us to do, He set those works down in heaven before the world was created. Notice what He says. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. That we should live in them. Same kind of works. Good works. Noble works. Beautiful works. Works that don't harm. But works that help. Works that are useful. Knowing that His works were of the Father, were from the Father, and that they were the Father's works... He says to them, for which of these good works do you stone me? Why are you stoning me for these kind of works, is more of what he's saying. There was a kind of work that he, was there a kind of work that would warrant that kind of punishment? Certainly not. Not. They knew that they could not indict him on any of the works that he had done. Because all the works were good ones. So they said to him, it is not for good works. At least they recognize that his works are good. It is not for good works that we stone you. But it's because you being a man make yourself God. And he should have been recognized as God, He should have been recognized as Messiah and as the Son of God. Because that's exactly what He was. And He was worthy of their worship. Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He never attempted to correct Himself and say that He was not the Messiah. He never backed up on what His claims were. He always kept on speaking the truth about Himself and and the Father and why He came. The Good Shepherd gives His life for the sheep. That's why He came. And that, never backing up, proved that His statement of being one with the Father was true. Now, at this point, Jesus quotes a passage from the Old Testament. Notice what he says uh, in uh, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Now he's pointing the law to them. Why is he doing that? I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. He says, It is... Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? What's he talking about? That is a very confusing statement, if you don't know where it comes from and what it's saying. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 82, because Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 82, which is a Relatively short psalm, only eight verses long. And we're going to dissect that psalm so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about when he says to them, Is it not written in your law, you are God's? Now, the setting of Psalm 82 is the court of Israel ruled by unjust judges And has now been taken over, the courtroom has now been taken over, not by the judges of Israel, but by God himself, who is the supreme judge. And he is holding court against the corrupt judges of Israel. Notice what he says in verse 1. God, Elohim, that's the name of God there, Elohim. Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Now if you'll notice that the word, the second word gods, is little with a little g. It is the same Hebrew word, Elohim, but it's used differently in the latter part of that verse than it is in the first part. In the first part, it is It is referring to God Himself as the supreme judge of the universe. In the second part, it is referring to someone else. So why does He call them gods? He's talking about people. Why does He call them gods? It is because the God of heaven has bestowed upon these people who are the judges of Israel... He has bestowed upon them His own authority to judge people in His name. This same thing carried, carried on through, through the entire Old Testament and on into the, the first century, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which made up the, the Sanhedrin Council of Israel, and people would bring their... Grievances and crimes that other people had done before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would judge them. The problem is, the Pharisees were corrupt judges. They did not judge according to God's judgment, but rather they judged according to their own judgments. So he uses the word gods because they are, they are far less than the supreme judge, but he has given them authority to judge in his name. That's why it, the, the word gods in little g is used. So these, they had become gods, little, little g, in a far lesser sense because they ruled as the representatives of the people under the supreme judge who was God Himself. That's why the word "Gods" is used. Notice verse 2. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, I don't know where your mind goes when you read those words. But my mind goes exactly to our judicial system today. And to our leaders and our judges across the land. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were judging unjustly. They were laying burdens upon the people that were, that were almost impossible to bear. They judged that which would accentuate themselves rather than justly before the people. Notice verse 3. He gives them what they should be doing. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He's speaking to the judges themselves. The ones that are called gods. Notice verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. These judges had no spiritual insight. They had no there was no possible way that they could judge according to the law or according to the scriptures because they had themselves only in mind. Verse 6, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, what is he's not saying that they are the sons of God in the sense that they're saved, that they're believing, because it's pretty obvious that they're not believing. They're walking around in darkness. They don't understand anything spiritual. But he calls them gods. They are... They are the, they are his sons because he has created them in his image. Nevertheless, he says in verse 7 like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Doesn't matter if you're the highest on the highest echelon of humanity or the lowest. Everybody dies. You'll die just like everybody else. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Here's a glimpse of the awesome sanctity of the judicial office in Israel. No matter what these people were in and of themselves, they were given the power and the responsibility to judge according to God's standards. But they didn't. (laughs) Rights and wrongs were subject to the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. It used to be that that judgment, even in our own country, was taken by virtue of the Word of God, by Scripture. That's why there were so many Bible Bible, uh, statements and verses and things spread around Washington, D.C. in the beginning. Because it was all based upon that Judeo-Christian ethic that we find in this book. And now they're being chiseled away and torn down. When Moses was overwhelmed in judging the children of Israel in the wilderness, the people of God took part of the Spirit. God took part of the Spirit that He had given to Moses to judge the people because Moses was just overwhelmed; He couldn't keep up with it all. Imagine one man... Judging two million people just didn't work. So, God, so Moses went to the Lord and said, I can't do this. And so God told Moses to choose out 70 elders of the land and I'll put my spirit on them to judge as well. When Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom to judge the people rightly, God gave him a godlike wisdom to carry it out for the purpose of judging with heavenly accuracy and justice. I think this psalm is very appropriate for today, for those who hold office, whether they be legislators or governors or presidents. Or judges from the supreme down. They will answer to God for the judgments that they make. And for their misuse of their power and corruption that was given to them by the God of heaven. When Jesus quotes this verse to them, He knows that the Pharisees will not disagree with Him. Because He makes the statement in verse verse 35, If He called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the Scriptures cannot be broken, he makes that statement. the scriptures can't be broken. They would have agreed with that. There's no way that they are going to stand there and argue with him about what the scriptures actually say because they're that's what they fall back on. and it's sort of like it's sort of like today with some uh, denominations that say, you can't understand what the Scriptures say. Why don't you leave that to the pastors or the priests or whatever? So they can't argue with it because they're the ones holding the high office of dignity as gods or as representative, uh, representatives of the Most High. That's what he says in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's what the Pharisees were doing. And in verse 5. You have neither knowledge nor understanding and you walk about in darkness. Is that not descriptive of them? Is that not descriptive of our own day? Since God called these... Lesser gods to represent him, how could they say to Jesus that he was blaspheming by saying he was the Son of God when all of the works that he had done screamed that he was who he said he was? There is no alternative to his claim. For he has stated that all the essence and prerogatives of deity are in him. In other words, if mere men who were evil could be in some sense be called gods, how could it be wrong for Jesus, the one called and sent by the Father, into the world and sanctified by the Father, how could it be wrong for him to be called the Son of God? That's what he's saying to them. They had no words to say after that. These Pharisees were merely the ones to whom the Word of God had come. He says, he says it here. Do you say to him of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. He gives them the option to not believe. But how can they not believe having seen all that He has done? They knew His works. They were were there from the very beginning when John was baptizing. And the Pharisees were questioning John, Are you the Christ? I am not. I'm just a forerunner, making straight the path for the one that will come. And then John himself, saying, there's the Lamb of God. But Jesus himself was the very Word of God who became flesh and came from above. None of them could claim, as Jesus did, a relationship with the Father. Because of the works he had done, he was entitled to the title Messiah and Son of God. If there was ever anyone that, that showed who he was by his works, it was Jesus. The charlatans that we've seen in the past and even still today that are going about trying to say that they're this or that by doing these miraculous works they claim to do are all liars and hypocrites and they're, they have no knowledge. They walk around in darkness. They're, they're there only to fill their own bellies. And to fleece God's people. They had the right not to believe Him if His works weren't true. But His works were true. And... Such was not the case. They rejected him once again. Now notice verse 39. And again, they sought to arrest him. This is They've done this before. They were never able to. Remember, at one time they sent the soldiers from the temple to arrest him. And, and the soldiers came back without him. And they said, did you not bring him? And what did they say? Oh, no one ever spoke like this man. He has words that are just different from anything we've ever heard. We couldn't bring Him in. And so Jesus, after they rose to stone Him, Jesus escaped out of their hands. They, they, we don't know exactly how He got away, but it was a supernatural <coughs> escape. Just like before, when he had walked through the crowd of them and they wanted to throw him over the cliff, he just sort of walked through them and they, they couldn't find him. So then Jesus goes away across the Jordan. The Lord's challenge had fallen on deaf ears as to who he was and what the Scriptures said. You know, I've been in ministry now for 43 years. I've learned a few things about people. It seems to me that the case is most of the time that when evil men parading as the people of God don't get their way, what happens is destruction and violence and hurt. It happens from the smallest groups to the largest. When fleshly desires reach their pinnacle, many times even the plainness of Scripture is disregarded or rejected. The time was set from all eternity for Jesus to do the works that He did And the time was set for him to be delivered into the hands of the Jews, to be arrested and tried. That was already set before the foundation of the world. It could not happen one moment sooner or one moment later than God had designed for it to happen. Yet his time had not come. And so we see him miraculously, supernaturally escaping And in verse 39, they had given, apparently given up on the attempt to stone him and proceeded to arrest him. But as they moved to arrest him, he escaped supernaturally out of their hands. Now, when Jesus leaves Jerusalem, he goes across the Jordan where John had first been baptizing. You recall what happened there when John was baptizing in the Jordan River. And the people came to be baptized by him. John preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And he baptized all of those who repented. Look, we don't baptize people who don't repent. We don't baptize people who don't understand the gospel, who don't understand what Jesus has done for them. And we don't baptize them if they haven't committed themselves to him as their treasure. He becomes their treasure and their life. That's what baptism is for. That's what it shows. And so the people found out that he was there. This was the place that John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This was the place where two of John's disciples saw Jesus and heard John say that and followed him. This was the place where where Philip found Nathanael and brought Nathanael to him. And Nathanael said, You are the Son of God. so the people found that he was there, and many of them remembered what had happened there by the Jordan. And they came out to where he was. And many of the crowds, it says, many in the crowd believed on him. They believed. What we see in chapter 10 is the next to the last rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They should have hailed Him as the King. And they did as He went into Jerusalem. Hail to the King of Israel. But that didn't last very long, did it? And those same people who cried out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord would be soon crying out, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. He's worthy of death. the public ministry of Jesus is now coming to very quickly to a close he would now begin to concentrate on his own disciples who had been following him for about the space of 3 years or, or a little over just a couple of months into the future and he would be brought up on charges and executed not by the jews but by the romans Because the Jews didn't have the authority to execute people. That was the Romans that did that. The Romans could give them permission. Jesus was not to be stoned. He would be hanged upon a tree because cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. This was something that the Pharisees would spearhead. Today, there are many who at the very mention of Jesus and salvation or the Bible will turn hostile to it and to the messengers who bring it. This is because people love their sin and they don't want anything to separate them from their sin. It is all they know. It is all they can do. They can't do anything good. They can't approach God. They can't come to Christ. All they can do is sin. But in the gospel, the hearts of dead people are made alive. They then can respond in faith. And believe in Him who died on the cross for them, His sheep. But even as these things are true, there are those who hear the Word of God and repent of their sins. And to them, God gives the right to become the children of God. I know a lot of you this morning, but I don't know all of you. And I say to you, now is the time for salvation. Today is the day. If you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts. If you hear the message of the Gospel, repent and believe in the Gospel. For salvation is today. And it may not come tomorrow. You may not be here tomorrow. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the Word of God. Certainly, Lord, this is a solemn solemn passage here at the end of chapter 10. And it goes on. Even today, as the, as the gospel is preached, as Christ is exalted, as He is lifted up as the Good Shepherd, as the King, as the Messiah, as the One who came and suffered and died for sinners like us, we pray, Lord, that You would open the hearts of those who do not know You to receive the gospel, to believe in the gospel And to follow Jesus, the one who saves sinners from their sin. Who saves sinners from the judgment. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.